Well, good evening. I can't tell you what a, what a privilege and a, and a joy it is for me to come and uh, fellowship with you this evening and to get to share God's word with you this evening. Um, I think I was last here about four years ago, and it's just been a, a very uh, an encouragement for me to see what the Lord is doing here. And just to encourage you that, you know, at Heritage Baptist in Joburg, we, we pray for you often. Unfortunately, your uh, Pastor Rian only told me to keep the sermon to 30 to 45 minutes after I prepared my sermon. So I hope today I can make an exception for an hour and a half sermon. <laughs> no, we'll, uh, we'll stay within the, within the timelines. Well, this evening we're going to hear from the greatest sermon ever preached. Of course, not talking about my sermon, but the Lord Jesus Christ's sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to ask you please to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read the, the first 12 verses, but for this evening's purpose, we're just going to focus on uh, verses 3 to 12. So if I could ask you to please turn to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles, and we'll read from the beginning of the chapter. It reads as follows. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help this evening. Our Father in heaven, do only what you can do. Open hearts this evening. Show us Christ to the end that we might glorify him. If there's anyone here, Lord, who has not yet bowed the knee, we ask that this would be the day of their salvation. Oh, Lord. Hear these requests in Jesus' name. Amen. As culture evolves with time, coupled with the effects of technology that come with that, certain words have become victims of overuse, and as a result of this, have lost their original luster and worth. Words that used to be loaded with emotion and depth and weight have become mere throwaway words. Take the word genius, for example. This word used to uh, rarely be used, and it was reserved for people like Beethoven and Albert Einstein and Shakespeare. But now every Tom, Joe, and Sipo literally is called the genius. Literally, you just need to come up with a half a good idea, and you'll be considered a genius. I don't know, I don't know, I'm yet to meet any parent whose child has not been referred to as a genius. Another word that pops to mind is hero. 
This used to be reserved for men and women who defied all odds and did the impossible to save communities from certain death or harm. Today, Johan just need to, needs to do a simple act of decency in order to be considered a hero of heroes. Sadly, the word blessed this evening and the word that we just read about this evening has become a victim of overused words in our culture. It falls into this category. A word that used to be rich in spiritual meaning of a state of happiness not primarily determined by external circumstances is now thrown around as a word which is now primarily determined by external circumstances, irrespective of what those are. If you have a, a Twitter account, and if I was a betting man, I'd bet that within the first 30 seconds of you scrolling through your feed, you'll come up the words, the word, hashtag blessed. As I was preparing my sermon, I quickly scrolled through a few Twitter posts and came across the following. One, post, one person posted this, I've had my Tesla now for two years and consider it an absolute miracle that in all this time I haven't gotten a speeding ticket. Hashtag blessed. Another Twitter post read, It's girls' night out tonight. Hashtag blessed. With, two, with a picture of two wine glasses. Now there is, of course, nothing wrong with, uh, a twi- uh, with, uh, with owning a Tesla. In fact, I'm sure it is a good car to, to own and, and, and ride in. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a girls' night out or a boys' night out. But the blessed estate, you know, the blessed estate that is assumed by these Twitter posts here is driven by positive external circumstances or experiences of those who are making this post, the so-called blessed. Our text this evening has come to be known in church history as the Beatitudes. And in it, the word blessed is used nine times, as you'll see. But you'll note that it has absolutely nothing to do with personal external circumstances of the blessed. But what does this word blessed or blessed mean? The New Bible Dictionary defines blessed as a state of happiness and well-being. As someone once put it, it also seems to carry with it a congratulatory or enviable element to it. You could therefore almost interpret our opening text as saying, congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Much like you'd say, happy are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus. Therefore, in his tour de force sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, as some call it, begins by encouraging his people and showing them, though there is nothing happy or enviable about the external circumstances, and though the world might view them as most to be pitied, yet in reality, in God's economy, they are blessed. They are to be congratulated and envied Because they can be truly happy. In one sense, Paul shows us the estate of those who God who are gods when he says in two Corinthians four sixteen, you don't need to turn there, he says this he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has been renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us. 
an eternal weight of glory beyond, far beyond all comparison. What a blessed estate. What an enviable position to be in. The Beatitudes is quite striking in today's culture, considering that everyone and their neighbor's dog wants to be happy. There's even a, a song about it, Happy. I once had a conversation with someone who said this. He said, I am happily divorced. Sadly, people find happiness in all the wrong places today. But Jesus will show us this evening what true happiness is. Let's now spend some time looking at each of these Beatitudes separately and understand how they apply to us. In verse 3, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this first beatitude, the Lord addresses those who are poor in spirit. Now this meaning isn't entirely obvious at first glance. And it took me some grappling with to understand what the Lord is getting at. I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of most of you, and maybe not all. But most of us know what it is to experience financial lack. In this environment of high interest rates and inflation and... uh, you know, ESCOM utility charges. Life is very expensive. I'm sure I'm speaking of most of you. I want to say, you know what it is to experience financial lack. Now, many of us have probably never been in a situation of abject poverty where you're barely surviving with the little that you have. But we've been in a situation when we've had to run financial you know, scenarios in our minds and cut back on certain nice-to-haves. Now, using this illustration to help us think about what Jesus is talking about here, we see that the Lord is talking about spiritual lack. A sense of being spiritually destitute as opposed to spiritually well-off. It is the idea of being spiritually bankrupt, which implies the realization that there is nothing good in us and that our will is bent towards evil. Those who are poor in spirit believe in Romans 3, 10 to 18 with all their hearts. And we don't have time to go there, but it reminds us that there is no one who is good, no one who seeks after good, after God, but we've each altogether turned away from God. Notice that Jesus calls these people, those who are poor in spirit, those who see that they're spiritually bankrupt, he calls them blessed. And the reason for this is in the text in front of us. Blessed are the poor in spirit for or because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which I take to mean that they will dwell in heaven. And you might be saying here, is Jesus talking about a salvation by works here? We know that that can't be the case. Because just like a poor, destitute man can't pay anything, can't pay his way into anything grand, Those who are poor in spirit know that they have no works or personal holiness to rely on. They know that their righteous deeds are as filthy rags, and so they rely. They can't rely on them for entrance into God's presence, but need to rely on Jesus' holiness and sacrifice alone completely to get them this entrance. So here's a question for you this evening. Are you poor in spirit? Have you recently taken a look at your spiritual bank balance and seen that you're in the negative? 
Or do you insist on being a spiritual millionaire at the cost of letting a free gift pass you by? There's no shame in seeing your spiritual poverty. In fact, it is in seeing it that you draw near to the kingdom and gain spiritual riches. Second then, Jesus addresses the second group, those who mourn. Verse 4 says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now if life has done what life does best, you have gone through a season of mourning in your life. And you have, if, you, if you haven't gone through that, you probably haven't lived long enough. Whilst many, if not all of us, have mourned and have been comforted in some way, shape, or form, I do wonder if there's more that Jesus is talking about here. Looking at the Beatitudes holistically, the beneficiaries of these blessings seem to be undergoing a spiritual reality or a heart issue. On this basis, I don't think Jesus is talking primarily about you know, physical mourning over a loved one or a foregone opportunity. I think that Jesus is referring to spiritual mourning. And to be more exact, those who mourn over their sins. This to me makes better sense in the context of the text. Those who mourn over their sins are simply not happy about their sins. And they're not indifferent about their sinfulness. They take their spiritual failures seriously and grieve over them. One thing that differentiates the best athletes from the poor athletes at a professional level is that the best athletes despise their underperformance and want to do something about it. They hate being 1% off their best. And they're filled with a sense of failure and disappointment when they don't leave everything on the field. In other words, they mourn over their failures, even when others think that they've done their best. It's been said that Michael Jordan, the best basketball player in, the history, in history, after being denied the opportunity to play for his high school, went home, locked himself in his room and cried for hours. He then went back and begged the coach if he could at least join the boys on the bus and watch the other boys play. He despised his failures and purposed to do something about it. Now followers of Christ grieve over missing the mark. We're of course not talking about sinful perfection here. We don't believe that. For as long as we're on this side of eternity, we will sin. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.10, you don't need to turn there, he says this. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The church of Corinth grieved over their sin. And that led to their repentance. Let me ask you this. When you sin, do you hate it? Do you ask yourself, how can I speak this way? How can I have these thoughts when it cost Jesus all his life? 
How can I provoke the spirit like this that does nothing but good to me? How can I be so arrogant? Are we quick to repent and ask for forgiveness of those we sinned against? Husbands and wives, do we have a bent towards keeping short accounts? When you sin against one another, do you have a bent towards being the first one to initiate and seek restitution when you've sinned? Not only this, but do we take active, active steps to make sure that we don't yield to the same temptation? Do we block certain websites? Do we stay away from certain friends? Do we avoid watching certain programs? Or are we indifferent? Are we like those mediocre players who says, well, who didn't get the gold medal, who says, well, guess what? We all make mistakes. I'll try again next time. Now, I'm not saying that we should condemn ourselves. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But what we're talking about here, as the Lord calls us, is that we should mourn over our sins. Those who mourn over their sins, Jesus says, will be comforted. Their burden will be lifted at the foot of the cross when they receive forgiveness and an assurance from their loving Father. Let's carry on then. The next category that Jesus speaks of in verse 5 are the meek. Sadly, the word meek in our culture has also incidentally lost its original meaning. The word meaning, the word meek implies weakness in our culture. It carries with it the idea of not having a backbone, timid, and being a doormat that everyone steps on. Paul refutes this type of understanding when he encourages young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, and I quote, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Another translation for fear in this text is timid. This is, of course, not what Jesus is referring to here. Meekness, rather, carries with it the idea of being lowly and gentle-hearted. Interestingly, it is the character that Jesus associates himself with in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, For I am lowly and gentle, after encouraging those with heavy burdens to come to him. None of you here who know Jesus can associate him with being weak and fearful. I found one writer, A.W. AW Tozer, had to say about meekness. Very helpful. Listen to this. He says, the meek man is not a house mouse or a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled by himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows that at the same time, he is in the sight of God with more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. 
He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth into its own. Then the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their father. He is willing to wait for that day. In the meantime, he will have attained a place of soul rest. As he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend him is over. He has found peace with, a, with what meekness brings. What a profound definition of meekness. So the question to you is this. Are you meek? Do you have to win every argument? But some of you might say, but gee, I just can't help the fact that I have a certain particular personality or temperament, you might say. To which I respond, we should be careful to not let our temperament stand against what God has called us to be. Rather, that implies that dying to self is required from us. Let me say this. It is not natural for us to wake up and be meek. There is nothing natural about meekness. This requires a dying to self so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. I enjoyed uh, the brother's prayer. I think it's Philip. I forget his name. But he was just recounting in his prayer about Jesus when he was you know, put into the headquarters and, and subjected to, to punishment. He said there was not a word from Jesus. And was Jesus weak? Was he a doormat in that? At the cross, you see perfect strength. Meekness personified. Now let this calling speak to you as much as it's spoken to me. Those who are meek, Jesus says, will inherit the earth. What a promise. What an inheritance. For us who are poor and limited in understanding, this seems to be a gigantic, disproportionate promise. Meekness will result in inheriting the earth. However, from God's perspective, this inheritance is coming from a place of abundance. The earth with its beauties they haven't been fully explored. However, it will belong to the meek when rewards are given. May this encourage us to pursue this virtue. The next blessing is in verse 6, and it's addressed to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, this would exclude those who hunger and thirst for, for righteousness out of their own goodness, for they would not be filled but those who firstly seek the righteousness that can only be found in Christ. And having found it, those who seek to grow in his likeness. It's an extremely uncomfortable thing, at best, to be hungry and thirsty. And it's an incredibly refreshing and satisfying thing to be filled and being given an ice-cold cup of water and a sumptuous meal to satisfy you. Those who find themselves in the spiritual reality will be satisfied. Now let me just say this, that the feeling of our spiritual hunger doesn't just happen by osmosis.
God has ordained that this hunger be filled in our exercise of spiritual disciplines which come at a cost. Paul says this to Timothy. I quote Timothy a lot today. Just realize that. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself. Discipline yourself for godliness. Those who prayerfully and diligently go through the scriptures will see the fruits that come with that. And will have their prayers answered. What a hunger. And what a thirst to have. To say, I want to grow in Christ-likeness. What a prayer to have in your own prayer closets. Father, help me to be holy. Help me to grow in in Christ-likeness. Now let me just say this as an aside. That as Christians, there are times when we'll feel like we've hit a bit of of a lull. Where we've lost our appetite where we've lost our original thirst and hunger and zeal, those times will come. When that happens, may we pray, David's prayer in Psalm 51, 12, he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. May God grant us this request. The next beatitude is found in verse 7, and it is to the merciful. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now it stands to reason that we can't expect to be shown mercy unless we have shown mercy. This beatitude reminded me of the parable of the unforgiving servant. He had just been forgiven a debt, a great debt. In fact, in Matthew 18, 24, it says that he owed 10,000 talents. And let me just say this, that a talent was a monetary unit worth 20 years as wages. Basically, he had been forgiven a debt that he could never, ever pay. And we see that later on, he comes across his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, an amount which could be paid in a few months with a few months' wages, and he does not show him mercy. Many of us, at times, behave like this unworthy servant. We've been forgiven this massive debt we can never pay, and we come across our brother and sister and we cannot pay him. We cannot forgive him for, for his small debts against us. We harbor bitterness and resentment and yet expect to be shown mercy against the great debt that we owe. Now may we be those who are bent towards showing mercy. Not at all saying that we should be ignoring issues and let them go undealt with, but we should be quick to forgive and show mercy that we might be shown mercy. Now Jesus continues in verse 8 and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me invite you please to turn with me to Psalm 24. If you're able to turn with me to Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6. It says this, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear falsely. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And this takes the idea of ascending the hill, carries with it the idea of going to see the Lord, standing in his holy place, carries with it the connotation of standing in his presence. Not anyone gets to stand in the presence of the Lord and see his face, but only those who, amongst other things that we've seen in this text, have clean hands and a pure heart. Now, what does it mean to have a pure heart? At a bare minimum, I understand it to not be a hypocrite. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it in, this, in a positive way. He says it means singleness. What you are in your private time is what you are in public. Not appearing one way on the outside, but another way on the inside. But for the two to be in absolute unison. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says this. It says, Who can say I have kept my heart pure and that I am clean from my sin? The answer is no one. On this basis, Matthew 5, 8 is a waste of time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. No one will see God because no one has a pure heart. Left on our own, we will never see God. But it's only in Christ trusting in his finished work on the cross that we're forgiven and are given clean robes and a clean heart. It's on this base and this basis alone that we will be able to see Christ, the God-man, and dwell with him forever. Now, if you're still trying to achieve this this purity out of sheer will, stop right now. Stop it right now. You're swimming upstream. It will only consume you. Rather, turn to Christ and he will give you a pure heart rooted in him. Lest you think, though, that because um, Christ is our Savior, that you don't have to labor for a pure heart, my response to you is the same as Paul gives in Romans 6.2 when he says, How can we who have died to sin still live in it? How can we who have been given a, a pure heart in Christ still soil it with sinful thoughts and words and deeds? Let's take care then, friends, to have our pure thoughts in our hearts and live in accordance with this purity that we have in Christ And the promise is this, we will see God. And Jesus continues in in verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now there are many obstacles that sow seeds of, of disunity. Because of this, being wrong doesn't always mean that you need to speak out about it. That's what it means to be meek, as we just heard. Without always sweeping things under the carpet, we are to do whatever it takes to pursue peace among us and unity. If there are instances of disunity and no peace, we call to forgive in pursuit of peace. When we do this, we behave as God did, who was the first one to pursue Adam and Eve when they sinned against him. And sought to restore the disunity that was there by making clothes for them. He is the ultimate peacemaker. 
And when we seek peace, we are truly being like him. As we draw near to a close now, as we look at the next two verses, which I'll look at simultaneously, Jesus encourages those who are persecuted for their faith. Notice that he doesn't encourage those persecuted for their own wrongdoing, but specifically on account of their faith in Jesus. Now, religious persecution in South Africa is not what it is in Somalia, where brothers and sisters are being killed for their faith and being disowned by their family members and relatives. But it doesn't mean that there's no encouragement for us here this evening. The Lord has something to say to us. Now, blessed are you if work opportunities are being passed or you're being looked over that on account of your faith at the office. Be encouraged if your friends make fun of you for not sleeping around with your girlfriend because you're not yet married. In our world, it's sometimes better to stick out like a sore thumb than to try and blend in our culture and, and torture our consciences. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for great is your reward in heaven. Now in closing, I want to speak firstly directly to unbelievers in our midst this evening. If you're an unbeliever, none of this applies to you. None of the blessings that I've just spoken about apply to you. The promises are meant only for Christians. Yours is not the kingdom of heaven because you are not poor in spirit. You're not spiritually bankrupt. You don't mourn over your sins, therefore you will not be comforted. But only what's only left for you is fear of judgment on judgment day where all your comforts and the comforts of this world will be taken from you. Now the good news is this. The opportunity is given tonight, this evening, to repent. To turn from your sins and to seek the forgiveness that comes only from Christ. He will not turn you away if you come to him. You might be saying, but you don't know my sins. You don't know what I did this past week. I've disqualified myself. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, I will in no ways cast out. So come, repent, believe in Jesus Christ, and these promises and blessings will belong to you. For the Christian, secondly, be encouraged by the fact that Jesus is the truly blessed man. All of the promises of the Beatitudes find their fulfillment in him. He is the truly meek man, the one who truly pursued righteousness and mercy. He is the only man who walked on earth with a pure heart. No sin was ever committed by him. He is the only peacemaker. He brought about a, a ministry of, reconcil of reconciliation between us and the Father. He is the one who suffered the worst form of persecution. Because unlike the prophets who come before him who were persecuted for their faith, he had never sinned. Now don't leave this place thinking that you need to achieve all of these things by sheer work, but rather look to him who achieved all of this for us. And out of that, on that basis, out of gratitude to him, 
show mercy to others. Pursue holiness. Pursue meekness. Pursue peace with others. And truly enjoy the blessing that comes with being a Christian. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, oh, what a joy it is to read these promises. What an encouragement to know that it is truly only the Christian who is truly blessed. And we rejoice in this because we don't have to do anything to enjoy this, but on the basis of what Christ alone has done. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you help us to rest on these promises this week. And if there's things that we've seen that has been exposed in our hearts, we pray that you'd work in us this week, Father. Come and root out evil. Come and root out disobedience. And if there's anyone here who finds that they're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness as they should, that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Make us hungry again. And we commit those who are here who have not yet bowed the knee. There's anyone here who knows that these promises and these blessings do not apply to him or her. Oh Lord, that you would meet with that person. Break their hearts like you read like you broke Lydia's hearts in, in Acts chapter sixteen. Break their heart, Lord, and save them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.